0: that's uh, it 's fitting this morning because we 're going to be talking about some other roles um, that we that we each have in in our own families and in other places and one of the other things that scripture talks about is the roles of leadership and one of the realities of elder is that there's this there 's this word called overseer um, and it 's used to describe elders and pastors and so elders are pastors, not paid pastors but but lay pastors, and so it's appropriate for us to to pray for them, to um, to encourage them, to support them, um, and so we're we're grateful to have Ben join the team, and we're looking forward to moving forward with him. <clears throat> this morning we are continuing our series uh, in Ephesians. Uh, we're actually second last week here. Next week will be our last uh, in the book together, uh, and it's been it's been a good time to go through and see. Um, all of the different things that Paul teaches through this book. This book is one of my favorites to teach to the church um, because there's so much in it that applies to not only our personal lives, but then also to the church in general as well. I'm just making a complete mess of class and set up here. No big deal. <clears throat> Will forgive me. Um, and I've, I've always enjoyed when others have... I've taught on it, I've always enjoyed being able to teach it myself, it's the first uh, book of the Bible that I, have, I ever heard taught, um, my youth pastor taught it, and it was the first time I'd ever heard a whole book be taught through, and so uh, I, I appreciate much of what it says. So if you remember, <clears throat> over the last while, um, several weeks, we've been learning about this new life in Christ that we have, through His grace, it creates a new life in us, a new life in the church, and how we are to interact in those relationships with the church, and um, In these new relationships, we recognize that sin will always separate us in our relationships. Our relationship with God, our relationship with others, it's always going to push us away from different things. But in and through Christ, all of those things can change. Our relationships with one another are now different, as we see in Ephesians 2, because of this this grace, and he speaks particularly to the Ephesian culture that Jewish believer and Gentile believers who hate each other, who have a form of racism, uh, now are bonded together because of Christ, because of his grace, That they are no longer allowed to be divided on these spiritual beliefs because Christ unites all of them together. As we continue on here in chapter 5 and 6, we see how Christ changes the relationships with our spouse, our family, and our work. And next week we'll take a look to see how our relationships change with the world and the forces at work uh, in the world. So join me this morning as we read Ephesians five eighteen to chapter 6, verse 9. It says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and in himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, "...having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in this land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. With a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will see back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. <clears throat> this is the word this morning. If I was to ask you a question, something like this, if you could do one thing for God, what could you do that would bring the most amount of glory to him? What would that thing be? For some, it might think of maybe going into ministry or maybe going on the missions field, taking some big step. Others might think about being more involved in serving in areas of the church or in ministry. Some might say caring for the hurting and the brokenhearted. Others may be led to be involved in some form of justice ministry or give a large amount of money to a ministry or church. And there are certainly many other things that we could add to this list like this and none of these things are bad in themselves but it's interesting that we almost never mention the area that we can most commonly and consistently glorify God. And that's of course our homes. The place that we can most glorify Christ is our homes. And healthy spiritual homes are like a a spring that brings life into everything that we do. When our homes are healthy, there's a life force that, that breathes out of that, that comes from that. It's like a spring that waters us when it's healthy. When it's not healthy, other things become more difficult. We've talked a lot over the last several weeks about this new identity that we have in Christ. That the old is gone and the new has come. We've talked about how that's like taking off a, an old piece of clothing and putting on a new one. Or a dirty piece and putting on a clean one. We've talked about how the spirit comes in, and lives in us that makes us new. And we are adopted as sons um, and, and brought into the family of God. So the question this morning is that as we walk in our new identity in Christ. How do we glorify Jesus in the different relational spheres. Marriage. Marriage. Parents, kids, workplaces of our lives. <clears throat> now I know we have a large chunk of uh, text to work through this morning. It's, it's going to take us a few minutes to get through here. Um, but I, I purposely kept it all together. Some, many people would break these up and do several sermons over them. But the intent of what Paul is speaking here is the spiritual reality of these relationships. This is not a, a practical lesson in, in how to do all of A, B, and C and... And D, E, and F to make your marriage amazing. It's a starting point of the spiritual reality of your marriage. Or the spiritual reality of parenting. Or the spiritual reality of our workplaces. And before we begin, I want to just quickly say that I know that not everyone here is married. Some of you hope to be one day. Look in you. back row there. Third back row there. Caleb, Josh. <clears throat> Good luck. Um, some, of you, some of you are widowed. Or divorced, and the topic of marriage can be difficult. Uh, I want you to know that we recognize that. Um, Some of you are uh, not able to have kids. Maybe you're like me. Or you never did. Some of you may hope to soon. Some of you aren't old enough to work. Or employ people. Others have retired and moved on from full-time work. And though I believe our text this morning still does... Um, give us much to consider and think about. I want to recognize that not every single piece that we talk through is going to maybe apply to you in that moment. But I am confident as we go through the text that there are things that will stick out to encourage and challenge all of us in how we live out our faith. And so as we do that, let's dive into verse 18 to 21 as we begin. And it says, Do not get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I remember being a teenager and uh, hearing this. And i uh, pretty new in my faith. I'm not even sure I was saved at this point yet, but I was coming to youth and I heard this. And I heard my youth pastor talk about how, like, we're, you know, this, this talks about singing towards one another. And I thought just singing in general was weird enough. Um, and the idea like that, oh, we're going to get together and sing and sing hymns and spiritual songs. I can see some of the men smiling at me like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I always thought this meant that like, as we get, we're get, we in like groups or relationships that you're supposed to sing towards each other. And I always thought that was a little strange. But Paul has a much more deeper sense here. And this section is very important for us to understand how we move forward in these relationships and these spheres. Because there's some things in here that act as a linchpin to the following verses about marriage, about our families, and about our workplaces. So it's important that we understand this. Paul opens the section by reminding us of what the source of healthy relationships are. the Spirit. He tells us to be filled by the Spirit and these verses are yet another example of how the Spirit-filled person lives in right relationship with God and right relationship with Christian community. So Paul begins by saying, don't get drunk, but rather be filled by the Spirit. This contrast is interesting, not only because drunkenness is sin, but the sin is the fact that we lose control. We are no longer in control of ourselves. And in that control, it can cause us to even further sin. But we put that in contrast with the self-control, which is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Paul encourages each believer to be filled with the Spirit. And that contrast is, is the point he's getting at. This is vital as we talk about relationships in this next section. So remember it. Remember this idea of being filled with the Spirit as the beginning point of how we do any of these things. That we... Our desire is to see the Spirit work in our lives, to empower us, to lead us to be more like Christ. Not more like our desires or our flesh or the things that we want, but to be more like Jesus. So for us to be successful in the relationships that we have and the realities, we must be filled with the Spirit because we will always want to fight against these exhortations Paul brings. Secondly, we need to be filled with the Spirit constantly because none of us live lives of constant joy, thanksgiving, and love. So we need the Spirit. One of the, things, one of the things marriage teaches you very quickly is how selfish you are. Heather and I like to, to talk about this with, with new people who are married. We just had some friends over in uh, about a month ago, and they are just newlyweds this summer. And uh, we were talking about the thing that hit us the first is, wow, we are selfish. Um, in our early, and it still hits us, but in an early part of a marriage, I remember, I remember one time just like being at home and having like, this little bickering thing and thinking, man, I'm really selfish that... That I need this this way. And marriage just reveal that. And, and the idea about, about that is that children often can reveal a lack of patience in us sometimes. I mean I'm not a parent but I hang out with a lot of youth. And, and I struggle with patience with them. And I'm not even around them all day sometimes. People can reveal a lack of patience or compassion in us. We need the spirit. What about conflict in our marriages, or in our workplaces. We need the Spirit. We need the Spirit to continually fill us. So Paul speaks of the effects of the Spirit, the Spirit that would fill us, and there's these effects that come out. And so the effects that we see are singing, giving thanks, and submitting. So we'll go through these really quick before we continue. We are a singing people, as Followers of Christ, we sing. It's a unique thing about being part of the church. It's about be, a unique thing about being part of a corporate body where we come and we gather and we sing. Um, most of us don't gather once a week to sing other places. This is a unique thing to what we do here. And this is what Paul is getting at. It. One commentator notes that we sing because God is too greatly to merely simply be spoken about. We are not just to think of God's grace and speak of it, we are to feel it and rejoice in it. Paul speaks of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And it's hard to be exactly certain why he uses these these different um, realities of, of types of songs or types of music or types of ways that we would worship when he's referring to praise. Um, one of the thoughts is that God is creative and infinitely varied. And in his beauty and majesty, uh, he meets us in, in various ways and in various forms and different ways of singing, different ways of of uh, praising, communicate in different ways to both ourselves and, and also to the Lord. Whatever the reason for Paul including the three types, our singing is clearly both a vertical and a horizontal expression. I want to hear this morning. When we come and worship corporately, it's not just a vertical expression. There's a relational horizontal expression together as a body. When we worship, cor- cor- <clears throat> when we worship corporately, we worship God of course. We come to honor and praise him. But we also declare these songs to and over each other. The truth of them, the truth of who God is, the instruction of them. We declare them together over the body of believers. We we declare that God is who he is, that he's great, that he deserves to be praised. And a people praising him are a people who praise him for his worthiness over each other. Vertically, the Spirit prompts us to sing with our whole being to the Lord Jesus. We should do so horizontally in the presence of of believers as well. That doesn't even bring into account that to worship together brings a great sense of unity in the church. It is hard to find ministries and things that all of us are passionate, excited, gifted about. But when we come and worship, there's a certain sense of unity. Young and old, people who serve in different places, different roles, come together and worship together. It shows that Jesus is the object of our worship. And this brings a great lesson for our text. God is the object of our worship. Not our spouse, not our children, not our work, not anything else. There are things that only Christ can give us. That we will not find in any of those places. We must find in Him. And we need to be careful of that because we might search in those other places, our spouse or our children, uh, for those things. For satisfaction, for love, for acceptance, for desire. And though those things might come in those There are things that only Jesus can truly satisfy in our souls, unlike any other people. The second thing, Paul says, is to give thanks. The second effect of the Spirit is we are people who give thanks. The filling of the Spirit brings us constant gratitude toward God because the Spirit, like we've talked about in several chapters, is always desiring to point us towards Jesus, to make us more like Him, to be thankful for all that He has done in our life. Now, Paul might be speaking about corporate worship here as well, that as we're together, we should be people who give thanksgiving, that we should give thanks. But believers are to give thanks in all circumstances, certainly in corporate worship, but individually as well. Thanksgiving is a clear effect of the Spirit overflowing in our lives. It's also a a clear benchmark for us. Are you known for complaining or murmuring? Spirit-filled people are thankful people. When we consider all that God has done, even all that Paul has just described in this one letter, the only response can be thanksgiving. The third effect Paul speaks about is submitting. Hear this one this morning. This is important to get. The third effect of being filled by the Spirit is submission. Some of you aren't going to like this. Before we talk about submission in marriage or work or children or anywhere else. Paul points out that we should submit to one another in the church. That this is an act of humility and of grace and of great love. And it's incredibly important for us to understand. The spirit always leads us into community where practical love and compassion can be demonstrated. The spirit enables you to do what is not natural in loving people. And submitting to people. Submit means to arrange ourselves under somebody else. Under their authority. To consider others better than ourselves. A great example of this is in, in the Marines. Or in soldiers. In the army. Soldiers submit to their superior ranks. Living and serving in subordination to them. But they also turn loose of their selfish agendas and desire. And live in submission to one another. The person staying right beside them, their bunkmate, their partner in a tank, their co-pilot in a jet. They live in submission to one another. And I love that idea, that idea that they turn loose their own selfish agendas and desires for the good of others. This should be the picture of the church. A place where people live, love, serve, and submit to one another for the good of each other. It refers to an act of sacrifice, humility, and gentleness. Even those in spiritual authority show submission. Paul describes in 1 Corinthians that he was a slave to everyone, even though he was an apostle, the highest part of spiritual authority at that time. He did this so that he might win some for Christ. Husbands are given an authority. They are to serve their wives humbly and tenderly, are even called to die for them. leadership that is spirit-filled involves humility. It's one of the core elements that Jesus demonstrates. Who always did his best for those who and he always led humbly and gently. Those are proper expressions of humility, of submission. All of us are called to submit first to Christ, to our leaders, but also to each other. So we submit to one another. But we will also be filled with the Spirit, as this is the only way that we will be able to do the other. Because none of us naturally love to submit to other people. But these are essentials to remember as we move in our text this morning. <clears throat> also remember that Paul is giving spiritual instruction here. Okay, This is not a, necessarily a practical list of marriage, or a practical list of how to parent, or a practical list for workplaces. It's about us coming into this new identity in Christ and how that changes these relationships as opposed to how the world operates in them. So Paul continues in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the Church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Before we begin as the responsibilities of husbands and wives, it's important to affirm that marriage is a covenant. It's permanent, it's sacred, intimate, it's mutual, it's exclusive. Christ, not marriage, is ultimate. He is the primary goal in our marriages, to be more like Jesus. And by the Spirit's help, we must nurture our marriage, grow together, and pursue Christ, knowing ultimately that he is the goal. Now, Paul starts off the section by saying, wives, submit to your husbands. This section of Scripture brings with it a level of animosity, particularly in our culture, but in the church as well. Because the idea of wives being instructed to submit, it, it comes with a, a sense of lesser. But also I think part of the reason it brings animosity is because how much the church has abused it in their teaching. And how we see the word submission to begin with. But before we go, continue on, remember that the whole of Christian life, everything about the Christian life is about submission. And also remember that the wife is called to submit to a husband who is willing to die for her. The husband should be the first to apologize, forgive, and serve. And he is to exemplify the lifestyle of Jesus to his bride. Kossenberger, a professor at Midwestern Baptist Seminary, says, While some may view submitting to one husband's authority is something negative. A more accurate way of looking at a marital role is to understand that wives are called to follow their husband's loving leadership. Husbands and wives have equal value in marriage, but different roles. A good analogy of this would be like a slow dance. I can't dance, um, but a slow slow dance is a good analogy. One person leads, one follows. One initiates and the other responds. Both are necessary for the dance to happen. If I was to dance with somebody, I wouldn't be able to lead or follow. So it would look like a disaster. But both are necessary for the dance to happen. And when a dance happens properly like that, it's a beautiful thing. And when a marriage works properly like that, it's a beautiful expression of worship to God. In this section, Paul gives both instruction and illustration about the wives' role in marriage. Let me be clear about submission, particularly submission of wives and marriage. We must reject the improper characters of this teaching. And they've happened through the church, they've happened in our culture, that have made the word akin to slavery or subservience or a top-down chain of command where one is subject to obey without question or demanded to do things. The idea is not a husband who just lies on the couch and You know, beckons for his wife to do all this stuff. It's not the point. It's not the purpose of this text. And anything remotely close to that, in the terms of submitting, needs to be rejected. You might ask why women are called to submit and husbands are called to love. Why not call wives to love? John Stott puts it this way: the wife's submission is but another aspect of love. What does it mean to submit? It is to give oneself up to somebody. What does it mean to love? It's to give oneself up to somebody. To submit is to put the will of the other ahead of your will. To love, to put the needs of the other ahead of your needs. The description of submission is an expression of worship that glorifies Christ. It must be noted, to submit in this context is not how the world sees it. It's not a tool of control or manipulation or a mechanism for someone to get their way. It's a way of sacrificial living, fulfilling the role that Christ has. One other thing that is important to note is wives submitting to their husbands, these aren't typecast responsibilities. Sometimes those things have been linked. Some foolishly have preached that by instructing wives to submit, it means that wives are to stay at home and do the cooking and do the cleaning and men go to work and then I don't know what they do. That's not the reality of this. The reality is is that as you become married and you become one, the, the roles of your house are fulfilled out of your gifting and of what's best for your family. I had one time, I, I went to a, a men's thing and this guy was berating that men need to control the money in your, in your family. And I'm not the only one that's been at something like this. And I started laughing. Um, it was just a, it was a group of men meeting and, and I thought, that's really interesting because that's never going to fly in my family. Um, and I remember sitting in a small group, it was like three or four people and they're saying, The question was, how can you do a better job of of leading your family in money? And I remember going first and saying, well, first of all, guys, I'm not going to do this at all. I'm not going to lead my family in money. Um, I'm going to allow my wife to oversee the finances and then make decisions with her. And I remember one guy being like, well, that's not what the guy said. And I said, well, I don't agree with what the guy said. And they're like, well, why? I said, because my wife's an accountant. (laughs) Right? And so my wife will gladly submit to decisions I might make about giving or things we need to buy, but I'm not going to tell her how to do the budget or how to run the budget or things like that. It's not practical. She's way more gifted. I'm going to allow her a gifting to be expressed in that. Now, do we make decisions together? Yes. Will Heather submit or or let me make a decision or ask me to make a final decision after discussion? Yes. (laughs) Usually, no. We make all these decisions together. It's a team. We come into it as a team. The approach is to not do that. Sometimes, though, we have been faced with situations where we have debated and we have talked and we have prayed and, and we just don't know what we're supposed to do. And Heather will look at me and say, okay, it's your decision. And so it's not about typecasting us into things. I do the cooking at home. Heather does the cleaning at home. We don't have these typecast rules. I do the grocery shopping. She does the laundry Some people think that's backwards, but that's what works for us in our gifting and our passions and things like that. That's not the point of marriage, is to typecast people. That's not the point of submission. Submission is an act of worship. And so Paul continues on with this illustration of, of marriage. Husbands are the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Remember this illustration. Head of the church, his body and himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to everything to their husbands. Now, the illustration gives a picture of marriage. It's a picture of Christ's love for the church. Wives give a picture of the church to the world, and husbands are to give a picture of Christ to the world. Christ is the head. And if we speak, we take a little peek ahead in the text, we see what kind of head he is, what kind of headship he has. He loved the church. He gave himself up for her. He sanctified her. He cleansed her. He presented her. And he provides and cares for the church. This is the, also the expected headship of husbands. When husband leads in this love, it is not difficult for a wife to want to follow him. The illustration Paul gives also reminds us that we live out our roles for marriage, that we must remember that it's about honoring Christ. It's not about ourselves. Marriage is about holiness and about pursuing Christ. And as important as it is to work on things like conflict, financial problems, communication, personality issues, issues with the mother-in-law, or things of the past. The ultimate issue in marriage is this. Are you surrendered to the lordship of Christ? Will you submit to him in all areas of your life? If the starting point of marriage is about me, my desires, it's always going to go bad. It's always going to be wrong. Marriage exists for Christ's glory. So let it be an act of worship as you grow together, love each other, forgive each other, and serve each other. Now, it's impossible to fully talk about the wife's role in marriage without also fully going through the husband's. I remember being on a ministry trip in Bible College. And we were invited to come to a church. Uh, and the pastor had asked our prof to come. He was a brilliant homiletics prof, and he said, I'm having some issues with marriage in my church, um, particularly with some of our men having a very um, strong view of what it means for wives to submit. And so he asked our prof to come, and he brought a few students because there were some other ministry things to serve, so, so we got to witness this. Um, and there'd been some poor instructions about what it meant for wives to To submit to their husbands. Some some really legalistic teaching. Some really poor teaching. And this pastor was trying to work this out with people but there was men in the church that that were convinced that wives were supposed to listen to everything that they were supposed to do and it was a mess. And uh, so our prof comes and uh, he starts to do the session. It's about an hour and uh, he starts instructing. He starts about talking through this and uh, he says about wives following their husbands and And submitting to the Lord and submitting to their husbands. And this is an act of worship. And and as he was speaking, we see all these nodding heads. And he gets to the seven minute mark of his talk. And then he said, okay. Husbands, I'm speaking for an hour tonight. And you get the other 53 minutes. And as he spoke about the biblical requirements for how husbands are to love and lead... Me and my friends have never seen a room of men squirm like that before. So why do I say this? Is it to intimidate the men in the room? No, it's not. But husbands, you are called to lead. And it's a high calling. It's the best calling. But I would do a disservice to you if I was to hold any punches back this morning when it comes to this calling. And spirit-filled husbands are to love in three ways. Sacrificially, sacrificial love, sanctifying love, and satisfying love. These are the types of love that a husband should demonstrate to their wives. Christ's love was Golgotha love. Christ was scourged. His hands and his feet were nailed To a cross, a spear was thrust in him, a crown of thorns was placed on his head and pierced his temple. All because he loved the church. He was willing to go there. His sacrificial love is foot washing. Christ's headship is our model. There is no other model. There is no other book, seminar, thing you're going to go to be successful spiritually as a husband. Christ is your model. If you want to know how to serve your wife, look how Christ served the church. He came to serve, though he was ahead, though he was the one with all authority and power. But we see this with unparalleled humility and incredible love. Men, marriage is a call to die. Dying to yourself, it may involve your schedule, even some of your good ambitions and dreams. It means giving yourself away for the good of the bride, crucifying your your flesh, And resolving to be faithful to your bride. Not yielding to temptations of lust, anger and pride. Marriage is a call to serve Christ-like love. Marriage is a place where Christ's love is on display. Christ's love always takes initiative. Actively love your wife. Christ-like love requires not just service but also appropriate Christ-like attitude in serving. Serve well. Sacrifice well. Remember, husbands, we are to be the demonstration of Christ to the world. In our marriage, if our wives are to show the church, we are to show Christ. What a high calling. What a privilege, but what a high calling. In how he led, how he sacrificed. We are to understand sacrificial love through his eyes. Second is sanctifying love. A husband cannot atone for sins or cleanse anyone. But they should love in a way that helps your spouse grow closer to Christ. Husbands should be concerned about your wife's spiritual lives. And men should be examples both in word and deed and faith. Your wife should not question whether you are following Jesus. They should see it every day in your life. They shouldn't see it by what you're involved in, but how you live. Care for your wife's soul, her fears, hopes, dreams, temptations, and disappointments. Shepherd and care for her faithfully. You are called to be the spiritual head of your family. If you do not put your faith first, it'll clearly be seen. Also, your wife is your second priority. It goes, Jesus, wife. If you're married, Jesus, wife. Write that down, men. Take your phone out, whatever you got to do. Jesus, then your wife, okay? Those are your priorities. Children come third, okay? If you have children. And then down from there, it can be lived out. But Jesus, wife. Okay? Wives are writing that down for you, but you should write it down for yourself. Okay? Jesus, wife. She's your second priority. Connect with her. Spend time with her. Encourage her. Love her. Spoil her. Pour into each other's lives. Third thing is satisfying love. We see in verse 28 to 31, Paul refers to. Creation, that husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. The husband should provide, nourish, and care for his bride, just as he cares for himself. Paul reminds husbands of the directive of Genesis 2. The first marriage reminding husbands that the two have become one. Husband, just as you long for intimacy, joy, security, health, peace, companionship, and community, provide them for your wife also. This is your responsibility. No one else's. Do you nourish your wife? Do you care for her in a way that she knows it? Do you admire her? Compliment her? Husbands, love your wives as your own body. Even if that means sacrificing some of your own wants, desires, dreams. Nourish her. Cherish her. One of the most difficult realities of these instructions for, for married couples is that you can't make the other person walk it out. In my experience, I, I've never met a married woman who is not willing to follow their husbands when they loved and cared for her like described. They're usually not like, oh, he just loves me too much. He just compliments me too much. He just cares for me too much. That's not the conversation that usually happens. The issue of these roles comes in when either we either pervert them, we make them something that they're not, or we choose not to live out them. And when we do that, it causes hurt and tension. So wives love your husbands, encourage them, respect them, challenge them, submit to their will, support them. But husbands love your wives, Be worthy of them, of their submission, of their following. Care for them, cherish them, protect them, sacrifice for them. Your family is your responsibility. Your wife is your responsibility. Care for her well. Lead her well. You will be held accountable for that. You will stand before Jesus and give account of how well you loved your wife. How well you cared for your wife. Finally, remember it is God who ordained marriage. Christ is the one who set marriage's pattern in motion. We see marriage through this dance of Christ and church and that is appropriate for how we see it in that illustration that we are to represent those things. And remember that it's the Spirit who empowers marriage. If you want to succeed in your marriage, you need the Spirit. I was sharing a story last night. Um, one of my boys on my, my volleyball team that I was coaching act, asked him, how does the spirit work? And we had a volleyball tournament Thursday and Saturday and this, one of my best players just sucked. And, uh, and I couldn't take him out because he was our, our tallest player, but he just kept not passing the ball. And there was a point, we were in the final game, we were in our third set, it was 8-7, and he just like, just dumped. Like it was just awful. And I just about kicked a chair. Like I just about turned around and kicked a chair and I remember doing this motion and then stopping. And I was letting him know after because he was the one that asked about how do you know the Holy Spirit's working in your life. Because I coached at the Christian school. I said, actually, remember that pass you missed and we went down 10-8? He said, yeah, I felt really bad about that. I said, I just about kicked a chair. You know what stopped me? The Holy Spirit. And he said, oh, that's how it works. I said, I could actually feel myself stopping. Um, Guys, we're not natural when it comes to loving people well. We can do certain things or buy certain things or act out certain things but our flesh is always at war within us. We're going to see that on display next week when we, when we talk about spiritual warfare. But We will always choose our selfishness. We will always choose, choose our dreams. We will always choose the things that we want over our spouse if we allow ourselves. We need the Spirit to empower us. You can communicate amazing. You can have all of the right tactics of marriage. But if your desire is to glorify God, you need the Spirit to help you. And the way that we allow the Spirit to empower us is by being people of the word, by being people of service, by people who are in relationship passionately with God. Paul continues on in in chapter six, verse one to four. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul now moves into our family sphere of relationship, that children should honor their parents. First, I think it's good to point out that parents have an incredible responsibility to each of their child's faith journey. Your children should see Christ in you and in your spouse end in how you walk out your marriage. They should look at your marriage and say, hey, I desire to be married one day. This is essential, particularly when it comes to Paul's command for children to obey their parents. So set an example, a Christ-like example for your children in your house. Paul says for children to obey their parents. So how are they to do this? Simply, Children obey their parents by hearing and doing what their parents say. I know I made that really simple for you, didn't I? That is the gist of it though, right? Now, I know it's far more complicated than that because what happens when they don't listen to what you say? But what we have to remember here is that Paul is also speaking not just to parents, but to children. So if children want to please the Lord, they obey their parents. I've had this uncomfortable conversation with some of my youth lately that if you want to honor the Lord, your desire is to follow Jesus. To honor the Lord, it's also to obey your parents. Now, that's not always difficult in certain circumstances. Some of them have many disagreements, even about faith of the parents. Some have non-Christian parents. Some of the things are difficult. But if we want to honor the Lord, that's the instruction, is that we find ways, we, we submit, and we work at obeying our parents. Remember again, Paul's giving this as more spiritual instruction. His desire is that children would honor Christ with their lives. Honoring their parents is part of this. When they do this, they honor the Lord. So why should children obey their parents? First, Paul says because it's right. And sometimes we we don't hold enough value on this. Essentially, that says first children should obey their parents because the Bible says so. Like, that's the first reason. The the Word says so. Often we don't use that as a reason why we should do things. If the Word tells us to do something, that should be the reason behind it. One of the reasons. The Word says it, so we should do it. Second, is God promises both a blessing that it may go well with you and safekeeping that you may live long in this land. Now this is from an original promise to Israel which involved good and long life in the land of Israel. This doesn't mean that a child who disobeys their children will never get sick or tragically die or that one that does obey their parents won't ever get sick or, or tragically die but paul's illustration is that there is danger in not obeying their parents because you don't obey the lord hebrews talks about the disciplining of children his children of god's children how the father disciplines us and there's consequences in that discipline at times Spiritual blessing always comes from obeying God's word. We must remember that. Again, Paul is speaking to children here, asking them to obey their children, or to obey their parents, because it pleases the Lord. But it's interesting to note in these verses that Paul identifies parents. Obey your parents, honor your mother and father. He implies an active role of the parents being present with their lives, particularly the father. And since Paul is encouraging us in the spiritual realms of these relationships, it's fair to note that the primary spot for discipleship of children is in the home. You want to glorify Jesus? Disciple your children. One of the greatest ways to honor and glorify Jesus is how you disciple your families. Are you conscious about your time and energy and spiritual matters with your children? Is the time you spend with them on spiritual matters both a knowledge and an experience-based thing? Because it's important for young people to have opportunities not only to learn about faith but also to live it out. Paul also gives two challenges to parents. The first one is, do not provoke. Do not provoke anger. In Paul's worlds, fathers had absolute control and were very harsh. Fathers could just sell their children if they didn't want them or wanted money. They could kill them without being charged with crime. Some would just abandon them to be slaves in the cities. Though the ancient world creates extreme examples... Harshness, and anger, and terrible acts to occur in today's world. It's important for parents to display love. Parents must be fair, loving, and consistent in attitude toward the children. A professor of adolescent development gives some possible ways. Of what could cause anger in kids as we spend time with them. Tim, you can go to the next slide. I can't slide change them anymore for some reason. So here's some reasons. Sometimes things that could possibly anger kids when we're in discipline or when we're talking to them. Forgetting that they are kids. Their actual age. Comparing them to one of their siblings or to a friend. Disciplining them inconsistently. Failing to express approval even at small accomplishments. Failing to express love to them. Please don't miss this. I've known enough teenagers already in my life. Who don't feel their parents love them to last a lifetime. So don't miss that one. It's not just telling them that you love them. It's showing them. Another one could be disciplining them for other reasons. Other than willful disobedience or defiance. Or pressuring them to pursue your goals. Not the ones that they feel called to pursue. Withdrawing love from them or overprotecting them or neglecting them emotionally. So what is the result of actions like these? Children become angry or discouraged. And in Colossians, Paul says, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. The second thing he says is, bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now we touched on this already in regards to discipling your kids, Raising up to honor the Lord. But discipline is part of that. Like I said, we see that in Hebrews. The father disciplines us as his children. But if discipline is part of it, we must be wise in discipline. The types of discipline and instruction that are to be given to children need to be of the Lord. That's something to remember. Paul is very specific about that. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Finally, no parent is perfect. Remember, just like relation in relationships, just like in marriage, you need to be spirit you need to be filled by the spirit to parent well. And to parent in a way that honors the Lord. I also want to say one other thing as someone who spent a lot of time in youth ministry. It takes a village. My goodness, did it take a village with me? My parents were not alone. There was other people who walked in my life who gave me a swift kick when I needed it, who spoke truth into my life you will need other people as well. Youth pastors, youth leaders, camp, mentors, teachers, coaches. There's going to be lots of different people that are going to be needed to, to move that thing along. And that's totally okay. You are not alone in it. But remember, to parent well, to love well, to disciple well, you need to be filled with the Spirit. Paul finishes section with speaking about working relationships. It says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as pe- people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he is a bond servant or is free, masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he was both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. The last area of relationships Paul speaks about is that of slave and master. In our present context, that would mean employee and employer are probably the best analogy that I can use. Though, admittedly, this is not a perfect one. Um, but I'll break it down as employee and employer. One of the things I want to touch on really quickly is that there is obviously in the ancient world, there's this idea of slavery. Now, some would say Paul is speaking here and he's clearly not condoning it. But if you were to read the works of Paul and the New Testament writers, though they don't speak out um, against the slavery of the Roman Empire in their letters, they clearly speak it out through their teaching. And I don't have time to dive into that, but as Paul speaks about this, it's not so much about the slavery that's happened, it's about the act of working and the people who are overseeing the people. So we're going to take it in the employee and employer View and it's an appropriate one. So, as employees, we should work like Christ. Remember that Jesus gives us the model of work ethic. He was a suffering servant. Jesus humbled himself and died for sinners. He took the form of a slave. He left the glory that he had to seek and save the lost. He came not to be served, but to serve. There's an attitude there for us to follow. Jesus was a carpenter. He worked hard for 30 years before he ever started his ministry. The virtues that Paul mentions here, Jesus would have exemplified them. Would Jesus have disrespected a person while working? No. Would Jesus have slacked off when no one was watching? No. Would Jesus bill someone for extra time? No. Was he a begrudging servant? No. Did he minimize his job? Thank you. <laughs> if you are a follower of Jesus, you should strive to be exemplary in your service and in your workplace, in your actions and your deed and the way you work. Thanks, James. You should not need supervision You should be the employee that people are glad to say, hey, go and do this. I know it's going to be done right. I don't have to worry about it because your integrity is so high. Your work should be done as if the Lord is watching because he is. It's also a great time for your integrity and your character to be on display around others. You might not be able to speak of faith things in your work, but you certainly can live them. The second thing for employees is to work for Christ. We should always do our best as if we were doing it for Jesus. Now, we do our work for our employer now, but we are to work for Christ in everything that we do, realizing that we will receive a reward for it from Christ later. And we don't probably meditate on these passages in the New Testament that talk about rewards in heaven for the way that we live and the way that we honor Christ. Remember that you and I, we can't work for our salvation But we are saved by grace to do good works for Christ. To be God's workmanship. So in everything we should work for Christ. Even in our jobs. Even if you hate your job. Even if your job has nothing to do with ministry at all. We are to be faithful to him in all of the things in our lives. But it's not just employees. There's this idea of masters, of employers. Employers, you should lead through Christ. To lead people well, to care for people well, to be a good boss, you need to be filled with the spirit. That's the theme of this morning. You need his wisdom and discernment, decision making, his character for how to treat people, how to honor them, how to care for them well. Lead like Christ. Christ isn't just the model servant, he is the perfect master also. What kind of leadership did Jesus walk out and execute? Servant leadership. He displayed the attitudes those in leadership should display. He came to serve. He took up the towel. He cared for the vulnerable. He did not seek earthly praise. He was a shepherd, not a dictator. There was no bottom lines or different things. It was all about people and caring for them. Finally, lead for Christ. Just like husbands will give an account for how they love their wives, masters will also give an account. With the power of leadership, whether that's in the church, in the world, wherever it is, there's a responsibility and expectation that comes with it. It doesn't matter what business you run or what you own or how big it is or how small it is. You're accountable to Jesus and how you run and operate that thing. how you treat your people, how you use your money, all of it, accountable to Jesus. He is still your audience, even in the business you run, even in the things that you're doing there. So as employees and employers, it's important for us to remember that Christ is not only involved in those areas of our of our lives, sometimes we like to kind of keep that separate, like works over here and churches over here, and when I have time from this i'll i'll be involved over here but the reality is is that christ is in all of this so as we work we should work to honor the lord as we lead people as we employ people we should lead well care well love well and lead like christ tim you can go to the last slide We glorify Jesus in the different relational spheres of our lives by being filled with the Holy Spirit, allowing him to lead and enable us to love sacrificially, submit humbly, and pursue Christ-likeness in all circumstances. And this is for all people. If we want to be successful in the relational spheres of our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, anywhere that we volunteer, this is the attitude that we must allow the Spirit to fill us with. A successful church is filled with successful families spiritually. If we want to be a a church that grows spiritually, our families need to grow spiritually. Because that's where it starts. It doesn't start here on Sunday mornings. It starts in the lunch that you have after. And the breakfast that comes the next day. And all the things that you set in motion. It starts with the integrity that you have at work. Or the way that you treat people who are under your authority. Or your attitude towards your boss. Or your connection and love with your children. It's these everyday little things. That we need help to live out. To love sacrificially. To walk humbly. And to pursue Christ in all circumstances. Let's pray this morning. Father we thank you for your word. We thank you for your instruction. Father we pray that as we strive to live out this new identity that you've given us in Christ, help us to live well in our relationships. I pray for marriages here, that there would be a deep desire in the marriages in this place to pursue you. That they would be sold out for your glory and their desire would be that you would be known in them and through them, that they would love each other well. Father, I pray for discipleship to happen in families. The kids would grow in in relationship with their parents and in you, and that they would know the truths of your word, but also that they would have a deep desire to serve you. And I pray for all of the people here that either work somewhere or employ people, Father, that they would recognize that you are with them in that. That this is an opportunity for us to show your character manifested through us by your spirit, but that we also have responsibility to you. We should work with an integrity that comes from your son. We should have the the responsibility and the accountability that comes with leadership. Knowing that you are watching, that we are accountable to you in how we work and how we employ and how we oversee people. Father, help us to live well in all of these spheres and influences. It's easy for us to choose how we're gonna act, how our attitude is going to be, how our desire is gonna change how we walk out our day. Father, help our attitudes and our desires to be that of yours. Help us to love well, submit humbly, and pursue your character always. We pray this in your name. Amen.